0: Chapter 9. It's good to have visitors with us. We appreciate you coming in. Some from the radio. Be praying for that. That that ministry is going very well now from from all the way from up in San Francisco area, down the Bakersfield area to Pennsylvania, Louisiana, Alabama, um, Virginia, of course, in the Richmond area. Acts chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 18, and we're going to see a, a, a changed man here. It says, And immediately there fell from his eyes, as it had been scales, and he received his sight forthwith arose and was baptized. And, he was, and when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was saw certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. Straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues, That he is the Son of God. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them which called on on this name in in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound under the chief priest? But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus. Now get this proving that this is the very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying awake was known of Saul, and they watched the gates night and day to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night, let him down the wall in a basket. When Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. That's going to be Peter and James. That's the two it's talking about right there. We'll see that in another portion of the New Testament. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, and how he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. They accepted him. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians. But they went about to slay him, which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you, Lord. I thank you for your word. Lord, I ask your blessing upon the message today. Lord, I pray that you'd be glorified and honored in all that's said and done. Lord, please control what I say and how I say it. Lord, I pray that it would be clear that the truth of what we see would help us and draw us closer to you. Use it to meet needs that are here. Teach us your word this morning. May your Holy Spirit illuminate it unto us. And Lord, again, may we just be strengthened by what we see here and how just incredibly powerful you are. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not truly know Christ as Savior, Lord, I pray that conviction and that drawing upon their heart, Lord, that even this morning they would repent and place their faith solely in Jesus Christ for salvation. Please work, Lord. I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, earlier in this chapter, we did see the conversion of this man, Saul. Again, perhaps the most important in the history of Christianity is this man. His impact really cannot be overstated. He would go on to write two-thirds of the New Testament. The Lord would use him in tremendous ways. We're going to get a small glimpse of that, what takes place right after he is converted. He would establish multitudes of churches. It would be crucial in churches getting grounded doctrinally and understanding Scripture, especially the Old Testament, in relation to what was taking place. As they were trying to see, okay, how do we go about this? We're used to Judaism, the temple, and synagogues. This man is going to be instrumental to how our church even looks right now. How we run our services. As we're going to see, his conversion would even be partially responsible. There's going to be two things we're going to look at. That allows for the new believers of these new churches to get some rest from the massive persecution that was taking place. In Philippians chapter 3, when Paul was thinking back on his own conversion... He really describes in great detail how his own value system changed the moment he trusted Christ. How the things that he thought were important to him no longer were. They were really basically garbage to him now. He realized all that he was living for, the religion he had, it was all really nothing. He saw it all as vanity. This is a changed man after conversion. He's the one who will pin the words in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. As we will see, he lived it. This was a changed man. The truth is, when God saves you, he changes you. If you have a testimony of salvation, yet there's never been a change, listen, that's a red flag. Just because you prayed a prayer doesn't mean you're saved. When God moves in, He changes. It's true, it is as simple as repentance and faith in Christ, and He saves us. But when He does it, He begins a change in your life. No, you're not a super Christian overnight, but but you should be desiring immediately the things of God. If not, something's horribly wrong. You just might be, as we heard in the testimony... uh, um, when Brother Shane joined the church on Wednesday night in his own personal testimony of his own life, when he came to know Christ, you just might simply be a tear in the wheat. I remember when I entered the Air Force on August 1st, 1989, know what was clear? I had a new mission. My life changed. The moment I got into Lackland Air Force Base, my life changed. You know what? I had a new uniform, I had a new vocabulary. Now, they don't actually say words in the military. It's everything DTS. It's all initials for everything all the way. But all of a sudden, I could speak in initials perfectly well. But I had a new vocabulary. I had a new uniform. I had a new haircut. There was nothing. I have a picture of me with right after that they took, right when I left the, the barber's booth with nothing on my head whatsoever. You know what they gave me? New standards. Because of the new mission that I had been given. My life changed when I entered the Air Force. How much clearer should it be, should that change be in our life when we come to know the Lord? When a conversion actually takes place. We have a movement today in churches trying to lessen a change that should take place when you come to know Christ. As if you don't have to worry about anything changing. Listen, something's wrong with that. Our life should change. I think of the book that I read several years ago that I enjoyed much, and I recommend it, called *The Case for Christ*. The Chicago journalist, who was, if I remember right, it's been many years since I read it. I think he was agnostic in his own view. I can't quite remember. I believe he was agnostic, and his wife gets converted. He was he was so upset. He could not believe she fell for this nonsense of Christianity. He was furious. How could my wife fall for this? I mean, to him, that's one of the, part, one of the greatest ways the devil has blinded the truth of the gospel to the Western world is to appeal to the pride and in intellectualism. As if this is nonsense. But you know what he noticed very quickly? She changed. In that book, he talks about, I had a good wife. I had no problem. We, we had a good marriage. But all of a sudden, she was a better wife. He saw her life change. You know what that did? That caused him to doubt what he believed. You know what he knew? Something happened to her. This is not the same woman. And that led him on his quest. You know what? He goes, I better actually study if Christianity is true or not. And he set out to do it. And you know what it led to? His conversion to Christ. What he realized, I've been wrong. This is true. When you come to know Christ, your life changes. We're going to see that today in the life of Paul. We're going, to see, we're going to see this man who was once the enemy of Christ becoming a volunteer slave for the Lord Jesus Christ. He gives his life entirely to him. We're going to see the new man, a new message, new misery, new mates, friends, and a new mission. So let's dive into this. We should be done by 4 o'clock. No problem whatsoever. A new man. Let's look at verse... Uh, let, let me let me get back in here. Let's start off... Let's start off first at verse 21, and I'll come back... Uh, I'll come back earlier to... Um, the prior verse here. <clears throat> I'm going to read verse... act, I'm going to read verse 18, and then 21. I'll come back to 19 and 22 later. I'm going to put 18... And 21 together it says, and immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales and he received sight forthwith and rose and was baptized. I'm going to park there for just a minute and a second. Verse 21 says, but all that heard him were amazed and said, is not this he that destroyed them, which called on the name in Jerusalem and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. So, again, we're going to start off here looking how everybody recognizes this is a changed man. And the first step that led to this was his baptism. It begins this, this new life that he has in Christ, that very first step of obedience. Now, I want to cover this. This was asked this several weeks ago, and I dealt with Paul's conversion, where I believe it was, it was during the time when he was on that road to Damascus. And I, and I elaborated why, but I want to go over to Acts 22. Acts chapter 22, I want to cover this. In verse number 16, <clears throat> Acts twenty two sixteen. this is one of about, there's primarily three to four texts that are used in scripture that are the proof texts for a doctrine called baptismal regeneration, which began to come to prominence second and third century. And so I want to discuss this, what takes place in Acts 22, verse 16. This is Paul, and it's, it, what's most important here is that we're going to see what gives us understanding of this verse is who's speaking it. It's going to be Paul himself. And he says, and Paul recounting of his own testimony of when he came to know the Lord, he says, and, and now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. This is often a text that is used to promote baptismal regeneration. What I mean, what I mean by that is, there, there are, and I grew up in one that actually taught that baptism is key to salvation, that it's part of it, that it, has, that it has, I'm going to use my term for it, it's not the term we were taught doctrinally, but a magical power, if you will, that's part of salvation, that somehow that water there, of course, they would just sprinkle, baptism means to immerse, by the way, that's what the word means, um, that, there, that, that God, term they would use, would give a measure of grace that enabled salvation. Now, that wasn't all. You also had the other church ordinance as well, which would have been communion. That would be a doctrine called transubstantiation. We're not going to dive into that today. But we need to look at this verse here and see what it's talking about. So, l- let's get into this. I, one of the keys we're going to see, we're going to break it down in two ways here, and I think it'll give you the understanding. One, the grammatical structure of the sentence here and the verbs that are used, as well as Paul... Himself, we'll look at his interpretation of it. We're going to see the man who said these words. What did he believe when he said it? Alright? I think those will be the key, and then we'll go from there. I don't have time to, I could preach a, a, probably a series of messages just on this topic. So I'm going to give away uh, um, uh, uh, some of the key things here. The word calling here is going to be key. In the Greek, it's not a present participle, it's not talking about a current action. It, it, it's, it's a verb that we would call, in the Greek, that is called erist. It's an eris tense, which means previous action. Something that has taken place. That's referring to his conversion. Note, you can see the punctuation, how it's separated by the commas right here. It was the calling on the Lord that was the essential to his salvation. The event that had already taken place, and now his baptism is going to picture exactly what took place. As baptism pictures it. Let me quote from some of the best Greek scholars. These are not even independent fundamental Baptists. Robertson, who has the book written, Robertson Word Pictures. Uh, one, one, a, a, a tremendous book. To quote from him on this section, he said, Baptism here pictures the washing away of sins by the blood of Christ. He, uh, Paul pointed out the imagery, which was common in Paul's writings, Uh, um, such as in Romans chapter 6. And then he focuses on the the participle that is used there in calling, how it was a past, it's something, an action that had took place in Paul's life already. That's where his conclusion is, Paul is referring to, baptism picturing, which is what it does. It's saying, I believe the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not that that water washes away your sin. So, How did Paul himself interpret this? The man who said it. How did he believe it? Let's take a look. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If that doctrine is true... you never let one of the very first rules when you get into a, a class like hermeneutics is you never let a statement that is clear without any any debate you never let any other part change the meaning of that ever here's the apostle paul the same man who spoke that let's see if he believed in baptismal regeneration let's see if he believed that you had to be baptized in order to be saved 1 corinthians chapter 1 verse 17 For Christ sent me not to baptize. Notice, he he separates even further. But to preach the gospel. The man just separated baptism and the gospel. Do you believe that if the baptism is part of the gospel, he separates it? This is the same man quoting from his own testimony. He also... Draws a great picture for us in Romans chapter six. For time's sake, we're not going to go there. And he lays out what baptism does. How it is, in fact, a picture of what is taking place, of being dead in Christ, having a new life in him. Baptism pictures it. That's what it does. First Corinthians one seventeen, again, the same man who was talking about his testimony says those exact same words. And we can, we can go on and on, but, but I, I will move on. What we see here, though, in our, in our text, back in Acts chapter 9, is the man gets baptized, he eats, remember, he had been fasting, and he's strengthened, and he begins to sit down and fellowship with those he came to arrest. It's a changed man. Now he's sitting down, the very people that he had the orders on, that he's going to throw in prison, He's there sitting down with him. The man who they talked about who had destroyed. Word basically means murder. We already we looked at that in his life before his conversion. He's leading the persecution. He would kill Christians. He didn't care if you're if you a man or a woman. He would throw you in prison. He would break up families. He was going to stop this movement of Christianity. He wanted it gone. And now here he is converted. He's sitting down, <laughs> sitting down uh, 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 with uh, 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 these disciples and fellowshipping with them. And then look at verse 21 right here. He's preaching Christ in the synagogues. And I'll get, to, I'll get to what he was preaching in a second. But all that heard him were amazed and said, know what they all notice? He's changed. Isn't the same man. Is not this he that destroyed them, which called on this name in Jerusalem and came hither for the intent that he might bring them bound under the chief priest? They're like, this is the same guy. Here's Saul, who was one of the religious leaders in Israel. An up-and-coming star, if you will. Passionate for the law. The one leading the persecution. The one believing at the time he's doing it that he's in a right place before God. That's a scary thought, isn't it? He believed with all his heart that what he was doing was right before God. Little did he realize what he would tell us later. The fact was, I was the chiefest of sinners. Little did I know how horrible my actions were and I thought I was glorifying God. That's a scary thought. They know this is a changed man. The one who once passionately defended Judaism. The one who killed and imprisoned. He's changed. The persecutor has become the preacher. The one motivated by hate now promotes love. He is completely changed. And they know it. The fact is, God does change you when you get saved. You know, even if I've been a child, I, again, I, I, was, I was 12 going on 13 when I came to know the Lord. I still remember that day. You've heard it many times. You know, I've been going to church with my uncle. I went to a Baptist church with my cousins, and the preaching was starting to grab me. I was listening every week, and I knew I needed what he was talking about. Finally, actually, that service, I was still afraid to go forward. The service had ended. I still did not go forward to in the invitation, but I couldn't leave. My cousin was next to me. We're starting to walk out of the pew. And I said, I can't leave. I said, I have to go talk to the pastor. And he was up over here on this side of the platform. I went up, talked to him. He sat me down on a pew sitting right over here. And he went right through the scriptures. And I still remember when the lights went on. I, I, I could have told you Christ died for my sins. But being so confused, I thought salvation was in my church. It was, it was in so much. My faith was never, ever just in Christ. That has been a deception of Satan since the first century. And then the lights just clicked on. I got it. When he was talking about Christ dying for my sins, I said, I, I get it. And the tears just started coming down. And Pastor Norris had asked me, are you ready to put your faith in Christ? Yes, I am. And right there that day, on June 30th, 1982, I put my faith in Christ. Now, I'm not that old. Later on that day, let's fast forward about an hour or two. I'm with my cousins. We're playing in the backyard. We're over by the willow tree in the yard and we're talking. And I cussed like I always did. And the word came out and I just felt, mm, that doesn't seem right. I had no idea. I didn't even relate it at that moment to my conversion. I didn't. But all of a sudden, it just felt wrong. You know what else I had a desire for all of a sudden? The Bible. I did. It was there. The desire was there. Going up and get there and starting to dive into this. A change had occurred. If you're telling me you have a testimony of salvation, you have no desire for this, no desire for God, listen to me. You're believing a lie. No, you're not super Christian. Yes, you still have a flesh. Yes, you still can't back. All that's true. But I'm telling you, if you have a testimony of conversion, yet there's no, no desire to change, nothing there. That's not conversion. Conversion brings change. Not only that, but he had a new message. Let me go through this quickly now. Verse 20 and 22. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. Verse 22. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. So he gets converted. We're going to cover a time frame. There, there's, there's actually those covering three years, what we just read. Three years. And you're going to see that here. Um, but Paul, as soon as he gets converted, right where he's at, he wants to tell others. He does. That's part of conversion, by the way. I do believe that. A desire to tell others. I remember going to camp without any growth. I remember the church without a pastor. I didn't grow in Christ for about three years after I got saved. I'd go to camp not knowing anything. But I, I would try my best to try and tell them. I didn't even know how. Paul starts right where he's at, right there in Damascus. And, the, and, and he says this, proving that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. How's he going to do that? You ever think about that? I know exactly how he's going to do that. This is Saul. He's going to the Old Testament and proving that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ that they have been waiting for. Proving it. Saul was a man who knew the Old Testament, he he, he truly was an Old Testament scholar before his conversion. There were very few in his day that knew the Old Testament better than this man. As he said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He knew Judaism. He knew exactly what it was to be able to show that Christ is in fact the Son of God. Could you just imagine Paul heading in to to one of the synagogues here in Damascus? And if you remember, don't forget we covered this. There was a large amount of Jews in Damascus. All right, there, there, there's a large, They had a large population of them there. So Paul would head into the synagogues. Could you imagine him open up to Isaiah chapter 53? Proving that Jesus is the Christ. How about Psalm 22, Psalm 16, the crucifixion and the resurrection? You no, know, that's, right, that's one of the things I hope that we get to heaven. We can, we can download or put the DVD in or whatever. There's several things I want to see. But when it comes to preaching, it's not just those who can shout the loudest and talk about how, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm tired of mass, and I am tired of mass mandates and everything. That, that stuff everybody knows. It riles you up. But I like the ones where you listen to an argument from Scripture and you're just like, wow, look at that. I, I would love to have been there in the synagogue and sit down and listen to Paul prove Jesus is the Christ. Could you imagine all of them hearing him speak? Wait, isn't this the man who came here to put people to death? Who came here to put people in prison for believing what he's teaching right now? But you know what they ran into? The same thing when Paul heard Stephen preach. He could say nothing. How do you argue with this? It's true. He had a new message. Or how about him go... Now, We joke about preaching through the book of Leviticus. But let's be honest, to listen to Paul preach through the book of Leviticus would be incredible. How he takes every aspect of what was taking place within their ceremonies and and, and the offerings, how he can relate everything to that of Jesus Christ. It would be incredible. This was a man who argued with Stephen. This was the man who knew both sides better than anybody. And can now preach with conviction, with passion. By the way, this also gives us the key, listen to this, and how we are to evangelize. It does. Do you know that doctrine is very important when you evangelize? It's not about feeling, it's not about emotion, it's about doctrine. It's not about producing a sense of, you know, uh, 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 that, that revival spirit. We need those at times. When we're, but you, you, know, you know what I'm saying. People respond based on emotion instead of truth. Evangelism is doctrinal. Christianity is not an experience. It's not a religious idea. It's a historical fact of what took place. It's not subjective. It's objective. Paul understood that immediately. He had that down. And so he sought to prove that Jesus is the Christ. You do that with the authority of the Scriptures. So he had had a new man, a new message, and now he has also some new enemies, new misery, new persecution. I needed an M, so I used misery. You know how hard it was to find an M for this one? New misery. So there's certain things we have to cover here. From from the time we get from 20, and straightway, this is right after his baptism, He preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. But we have a gap here that's taken between 20 and 21 and 20. Well, actually, 20, 21 through 22, 23. Let's read it here in order. But all that heard him were amazed and said, Is not this he that destroyed them, which called on them in Jerusalem, and came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound under the chief priests. We actually now have the gap of time. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt, dwelt at Damascus. Now what he's doing is proving that this is the very Christ. His arguments have increased. Notice what it says here. And after that, many days were fulfilled. The Jews took counsel to, to kill him. So we, have a th- we say, how do you know we have a three-year segment here? Because Paul tells us what happened during, during this time frame right here. Go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Luke does not give the detail in Acts, but there's some major events taking place right now. Paul gives us what took place in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse number 15. But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Remember, his conversion is in Damascus. Neither went I up to Jerusalem, to them which which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus where he was converted. Then after three years I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him fifteen days. But other than the apostles saw I none, save James, uh, uh, James, the Lord's uh, Lord's brother. Peter and James is all he met when, when he went there. And let me read on here. This is going to be important. Afterwards, I came into the regions of uh, uh, Syria and Cilicia. So let's stop right there. So we have the gap here filled in of what takes place in Paul's life. He gets converted. He gets converted under, under the direction and leading of the Lord. He's preaching immediately. But then he heads out. He goes to Arabia. This is not Saudi Arabia. This would be, on the, this, this would be coming down south. I'm going to have an image later and I'll show you where it's at. South of Damascus. Um, very south of Damascus, coming down almost when you're starting to head towards the Egyptian way. Um, that this is where this is taking place. It's called the Nabateen Arabia. And so Paul heads to that area under the leading of the Lord. He's going to spend, we don't know, he never says exactly how much time was in Arabia. We just know there's three years that take place here. But what makes sense is almost the bulk of that three years was probably in Arabia. Because think of how strong his arguments are. When they heard Stephen preach a powerful argument, Jesus is the Christ, how many sermons did he get out? One. They wanted him dead. So based on that information, it's, 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 not, it's not doing discredit to surmise, to surmise that he spent the bulk of the three years in Arabia, then coming back, proving Jesus is the Christ, and now they want him dead. But why did he go to Arabia? This is where the Lord is instructing him in the word of God. This is, this, as he says in Galatians chapter 1 here, this is where he's getting instruction. He's putting together much of the Old Testament, tying it to the Lord Jesus Christ. A time of the Lord teaching him his word. Remember, that's a requirement of one of the apostles, by the way, is to have seen the Lord. That's why there's no apostles today. This isn't rocket science. It was a requirement. Paul met that requirement on the road, and in getting taught from the Lord. So he is learning uh, um, uh, uh, to tie these things together. After Arabia, he comes back to Damascus, as he said. He goes back to Damascus. He's in Damascus. He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He heads to Arabia. He gets, he, he's, he, uh, um, once he leaves Arabia, he heads back to Damascus. He's preaching again, but now they want him dead. Those who were before his, his friends are now his enemies. Now they're seeking to kill him. They want him dead. Many times this happens at conversion. Those who were previously your friends all of a sudden become your enemies. Those who previously you were so close to now become your enemies. Why is that? What you're living for has changed. You have a whole new goal. And many times that can be convicting. Oh, you think you're better than me now? What you, you 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 you're not you're not going to drink with me anymore, really. And, and Paul Paul seen it a whole another level. Paul knew he was going to suffer from day one. the the hunt, The hunter is now becoming the hunted. That'd be true every day of his Christian life. He has brand new enemies. So they took counsel to kill him. They set a guard at the gates, assigned to look for Paul. That they're going to kill him. They find him going in and out. He's a dead man. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at this. It's interesting. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn back just a couple. Well, I was in Galatians still. If you're there, just turn back a couple of these. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 32. Paul's referring to this time when they got him out of Damascus. He says this. He says, in Damascus, the governor under um, Aratas, the king, kept the city of, uh, of Damascus with a garrison desirous to apprehend me, and through a window in a basket, I was let down by the wall and escaped his hands. So the Jews were able to get with a governor who's under this king what 's interesting is who the king is. The king would have the same region he was in control of of Arabia. So we have no idea it 's pure speculation. But it doesn't seem unreasonable that Paul had some run ins with this guy. He's all for killing him at this point. They have the authority of the government using a garrison to get him and kill him. But, as we read, they have the plot there to kill him. They know what's taking place. Paul hears about it. And so they take. Remember, these walls are not like we think of walls today, these are big, thick walls. This is Damascus. There's houses in this thing. So no doubt it's one of those houses that are there, and he's let through a window on that wall, down in a a really big basket, and he's able to escape. So, he has new enemies. He's aware of that now, but he's a new man with a new message. But not only only we know he has new enemies, but now he has new friends. Look at 26 through 28. 26 through 28. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, so they let him down by the basket, He's coming to Jerusalem. He has stayed to join himself. So it's three years since his conversion at this point. He has stayed to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. By the way, I don't have time to elaborate, but if you just think about it for a second, this verse also supports the idea that the bulk of the three years was in Arabia. All right? Verse 27, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem and he spake boldly in the name of the the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Let's stop there. Now we see new friends, new mates. In the life of Paul. He heads to Jerusalem to meet with the disciples. Of the apostles, there's only two that are present. That's going to be James and, and Peter who are present. The others probably scattered with the persecution that is taking place and, and going very strong. Um, however, they don't want to see him. They believe it's a trick. It's a ploy. They don't believe his conversion is real. They believe he wants the leadership gone. And this is just a ploy to get to the leadership. And so they won't see him. They don't believe it. And the Bible uses the word he has saved. It's an imperfect tense, which means Paul is trying over and over to get to see him. Please, hear me out. Please. He didn't just try once. It's over and over and over. Please, I need to talk with you. I need to talk with you. But they won't have it. But guess what the Lord does? He brings a new friend into Paul's life. Barnabas the one who is in the Bible in the New Testament known as the encourager, the son of consolation, a man full of grace. It's very possible, it's very possible that these two men might have known each other before their conversions. Based on where they both grew up, they're both Hellenistic Jews, Barnabas from Cyprus, which is just a a short, short little boat ride from Cilicia, where Paul was from, of Tarsus. Very close. So it's, it's not, not too unlikely uh, or not too out of reach to think that it's possible that these two men met before, and it really doesn't matter, but it certainly is possible. But Barnabas hears of Paul's testimony, and he believes it. He believes this man's converted. It's true. And so Barnabas goes to the apostles on behalf of Paul. Saul, still at this time, his name's getting ready to change. And says, listen, no, this is true. I No doubt he told of Ananias. Listen, maybe he had letters from Ananias. Listen, listen to this. Listen to what happened to him on the road. This is real. And so based upon the word of Barnabas, remember Barnabas had great respect of, of, of church leadership. This was a great man and, and he had great influence. And so once they heard from Barnabas, they said, well, we'll see him. And next thing you know, he's with them. Here's, here's what Peter and James realized immediately. This man's important. They're hearing him speak, and they're like, Wow. This man's important. He's going to do something. So much so as we're going to see, when his life is threatened, they get him out of town immediately. They don't want anything to happen to him yet. But what the Lord does here is, he puts a friend in the life of the Apostle Paul. You know, the Lord's great at doing that. At the times you need somebody in your life, He has him there. The Lord knew Paul needed to talk with Peter. He had to meet with him. He had to realize, I'm no longer your enemy. I'm your brother. I was wrong. You were right. But Paul needed a friend. And the Lord had Barnabas there. And a friendship begun. Paul spends only two weeks, 15 days, in Jerusalem. That's it. He's with Peter. He's with James during that time. They're talking back and forth, traveling in and out. They're hearing him speak. Paul concentrated, Saul still at this time, on the Grecian synagogues, just the Hellenistic Jews. Like the same one that he heard Stephen preach, he's going back to them. Now he's the one in Stephen's place. And they're hearing him speak. Wait, you're the one who gave the permission for us to kill Stephen. That's right. Stephen was right. They're hearing him prove (laughs) that Jesus is the Christ. Could you just see Peter there? Peter's like, yes! (laughs) They hear his arguments, now they want him dead. His new friends, his new brothers, no, we can't lose this man, he's too important. They get him out of town. Again, it is amazing how God had Barnabas there for Paul when he needed him. Listen, God does that in our life all the time. The times that we do need those, when we need a friend or we need something, the Lord does provide. He does. You trust Him. That's what you do. Now, let's go on lastly here to His new mission. 29 through 31. We got a new man with a new message who has a new misery of persecution and enemies to new mates, friends. We see His new mission. Incredible what what He does here. Love this part. All right, let let me jump into this here. Um, Verse 30. Which when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Now to understand what's taking place here, you you do have to go to other places in Scripture. If you think Paul is just going to go sit home in Tarsus, It's not what he does. It's not what he does at all. The man has a brand new mission. He has a new mission. He understood why they had to get him out of Jerusalem. Uh, Jerusalem would be the most volatile place. Just like with Stephen, they would kill him instantly. And Peter's like, we're not having that. You're getting out of town. So they get him to Caesarea. Caesarea was really the perfect place to get him out to immediately. That's the capital of this Judea province under Rome at this time. You've got the port there. You've got boats traveling in and out. Um, the Roman government, protection there. There's all kinds of stuff there that's going to be helpful to him. So they get him to Caesarea immediately, and from there he goes to Tarsus. Now let's look at this so you can picture it in your mind where Paul is during this time. Let me have that picture now, just here for a minute. Oh, I need a pointer. I don't have a pointer, do I? Here. But it's amazing. You know what the guy was doing? Let's look at this. Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We think Paul had his first missionary journey once he was in Acts chapter um, 12 and 13 in there. But let's, let's look here at a couple of verses. Two verses in Acts chapter 15. Verse 23, this is Paul, he, he's, he's already completed one of his missionary journeys, They have the, the great, this debate takes place because now the Judaizers were coming in, and guess what they were doing? Confusing the gospel, adding to the gospel that it's not just faith in Christ. So they're dealing with that issue. Those who now added law to it, the Judaizers using Judaism to add to the gospel. Groups do that, whatever they know, they try and add it to the gospel, whatever it is. So, look at verse 23 in Acts 15. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. These are letters in in writing to the Gentile converts because they were getting confused because Judaizers had snuck into the church. So they're trying to help them out. So they send these letters out. But, But look where the letters were going. And they wrote letters by them after this manner, the apostles and elders and brethren, and send greetings unto the brethren which, which are of the Gentiles, and Antioch, wait, now Antioch we know of, but Syria and Cilicia. Wow. Wait, let's, let's go over to another verse here. Look at verse 41. This is Paul's getting ready to hit the, the, the next missionary journey here. But notice, he did not go there in his first missionary journey. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming what? To churches. Do you know what he was doing when he was in Cilicia those seven years? Establishing churches. That's what he was doing. Some even believe that some of the churches in Galatia also probably would have been started during this time. So Paul did not sit down for the seven years. The man was definitely at work. He knew he had a new mission that was to glorify God, and that was to tell others. That's exactly what he was doing. This was a completely different man with a new mission, a new message... He had new friends that the Lord would provide for him, and he had to watch out, though, for those brand new enemies that he now had. And then we have the great conclusion in verse number 31 of Acts chapter 9. Look what takes place now. Then had the churches rest. Boy, did they need that. Persecution was strong throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Let's finish with this verse. The Lord will know that these churches need a break. They need a rest. Arrest from all that's taking place. Of course, no doubt, the conversion of, of Saul would help lead to that rest. But there were others, as we see, them wanting him dead. There were others picking up the slack. Still willing to kill and put in prison those who were following Christianity. So it was not this e- event alone. But what's interesting, at this exact same time in world history, another event takes place in Jerusalem that would have to cause the Jews to turn their attention away from the Christians to deal with the current problem that arose in their capital. Let me read about that from a historian. This is what was happening politically at the exact same time in Jerusalem. Uh, this is a, a Dr. Lardner. He accounts for what was taking place during this time. He said, Soon after Coligia's ascension, the Jews at Alexandria suffered very much from Egyptians in that city. And at length, their uh, 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 much, many of their synagogues, everything was destroyed. In the third year of Caligula, 39 A.D., Patronus was sent into Syria with orders—get this—to set up the, emperor, uh, the emperor's statue in the temple at Jerusalem. This order from Caligula was to the Jews a thunderstroke. The Jews must have been too much engaged after this to mind anything else, and may appear from the account which Philo and Josephus have given of this affair. Josephus said this, that Coligia ordered Petronius to go with an army to Jerusalem to set up his statue in the temple, enjoining him if the Jews opposed it to put to death all those who made any resistance and make all the rest of the nation slaves. So all of a sudden, the nation of Israel had a political event come up that is helping lead to the rest that they're now enjoying. Now what's nice about this rest some people tend to go backwards when there's a rest. They didn't. They grew. They flourished. They multiplied more. They got more sound in doctrine. It's just incredible. They grew in the Lord. So, within our text today, what we see with Paul, who is, again, the man I believe to be the greatest Christian who has ever lived, you see a changed man. And it's true. When the gospel comes in, it changes you. Just like Paul, we have a new message. The responsibility to tell others that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, the answer, it is Him. I mean, you can think of, of how horribly divided. Can can you just see just in the last two and three years how division has just come into our country? It's incredible. I mean, I mean, it's something new all the time, just to cause division and hate. Whether it's a vaccine, whether it's a mask, whether it's color, just anything that causes division and hate. You know what the answer is? It's it's not a better government. It's Christ. He was a new man who had changed. A new man, a new message. He had new misery with enemies and persecution. He had new mates, friends, and a new mission. What an example of a changed life. Now, this man was converted. What I mean by that is this. Your conversion to Christianity is what's most important. That you do see this historical fact of what took place and understand what it is and that you make the choice to say yes I'm going to repent and place my faith in what was done. And so what was that? You see, one day you're going to, stand, you're going to die, the Bible says, and you're going to stand before God and he's going to judge you. Hebrews 9.27 teaches us that. It's pointing them in once to die, but after this is judgment. You will die and you will stand before Almighty God. You might laugh at that. You might think that's not going to happen. You're simply wrong. You will die and be judged of the creator of the universe. And when he judges you, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2, he's going to use his law and he's going to judge your life. You think, I'll be all right. No, you won't. You're going to be guilty, just like I would be. The Bible says, for all have sinned. You have broken his law. You don't have your own little cool thing worked out between you and God. That's not how this is going to go down. It's not. This is a holy, righteous, perfect God. He's going to judge you. you will, you're not going to say a word. He's all-knowing. He knows everything about you. And he just, basically what he does at this judgment, he just shows you why you're guilty. Those who are found guilty, 100% of them are cast into a lake of fire. Think about that. God's going to judge you. Every single one who is found guilty is cast into a lake of fire. Something has to happen where you look perfect. The Lord understood that judgment. He understood that He is just, that He is holy. He had to come up with a way to somehow get His grace and His love to meet with His justice and His holiness. He's not changing who He is. He can't just say, no, that's fine. You're all right. I'll just save everybody. He's just and He's holy. That's not changing. So what He did is incredible in order to save you from that judgment. He became a man. The second Adam is referred to in the Word of God. Except he's not going to produce a bunch of sinners. He's going to produce a righteousness. So God becomes a man. The Lord Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, incredible. God's now on earth as a man. And know what he did as a man? He lived the perfect life. Think about that. So for the first time in all of human history, as a man, someone could stand before the Creator, the Father, and he would be found innocent. No guilt. None. Now get this. This is what's amazing. He lived that perfect life for you. When he went to the cross, one of the greatest verses on the cross of Christ is Second Corinthians 5.21. This is what it teaches us what took place that day. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What it's telling us is God the Father placed upon His Son the sin of us all. He made Him to be sin for us. So the Father judged Christ in your place. He took your sin upon Himself and He judged Him. That satisfied before the Creator justice. Jesus wasn't just a man. He is God. So guess what happened after three days and three nights? Hell didn't hold him. He defeated death and rose again from the dead. If God judges you, and you go to hell, you're not God. You're not coming out. So he took our sin, but that's not all that verse teaches, is it? He gives us his righteousness. So think about that. When he went to the cross, what he enabled to take place is for the Son of God... To take your sin upon Himself to be your Lamb, as Israel would understand it. The Lamb which would take away the sins of the world. He takes your sin upon Himself and the Father says, I'll accept that and I'll judge my Son in your place. And at the same time, He gives you His perfect life. So think, if that takes place, if He takes all of your sin, and then He gives you His perfect life and you stand before God, are you innocent or guilty? You're innocent. That's what enables God to save you. A holy and a righteous God. The question is, how do we do we do that? How is that accomplished? He died for everyone, but as Christ stressed, His death is not effectual for all. Few there be that find it. It's through repentance and faith in Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. A great example is the thief on the cross. Two of them both both asked to be saved. One asked to come down from the cross. Think about that conversation. The first speaks up and says, If thou be the Christ, get us down from here. The Lord never acknowledges that man. The other thief speaks up. He says, you need to be quiet. We deserve to be here. This man has done nothing wrong. And look what he does. He doesn't join a church. He doesn't get baptized. And people like to throw in some magical moment, which him just to get saved by faith. i got news for you. People have always been saved just by faith. Yes, sir. He repents and places his faith only in the Lord. You say, how do you know that? Because he put his trust only in Christ. The next moment he asked us, this man never asked to come down from the cross. What was he afraid of? Judgment. He knew he was a horrible man. Getting ready to face a holy and a righteous God. And he put his faith in the only one who could save him. He says to the Lord, Lord, when thou comest into thy kingdom, remember me. Where's his faith at? The Lord Jesus Christ. At that moment, the Lord says, "Today, thou shalt be with me in paradise." So, the question is, what is your faith in? For Christ's death to be effectual for you, you have to repent and place your faith. Listen solely in Christ. I stress that because when we get, we will cover the Book of Galatians. That will definitely be a Sunday morning series that we're going to go through, and we're going to see how the devil came in and used added to the. God. It wasn't that they no longer believed Christ didn't die on the cross for their sins? They didn't believe that was alone was enough just faith in that. And Paul was clear. I marvel. You are so, you're already removed from this truth. Recognizing this, this is the core of it. He knew this means there's nobody there getting saved. You're trusting in something that can't save you. It is repentance and faith in Christ alone. With heads bowed.